We'll look this morning at the first 12 verses. In case you haven't noticed yet, the book of Galatians is a bit difficult. Here Paul passionately argues in defense of the gospel. Here he shows that uh, to try to mix the works of the law with the grace of Christ Jesus is to abandon the gospel, our only hope of ever being right with God. Well, we're not through this little book yet. We still have, uh, after today, half of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 to go. But we're almost through with this carefully argued doctrinal section. Today we finish Paul's formal theological reasoning on this subject. And then we'll turn uh, next time, turn our minds to some practical problems which desperately needed to be addressed. Some problems about Christian living need to be addressed in Galatia and uh, perhaps in our lives as well. But this morning, uh, let's read this last theological argument, the first 12 verses of Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth. That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. This is God's word to us this morning. You remember your English composition class? It's been a long time since I had one, but I remember a little bit. And what I'm reminded of this morning is uh, the instruction about writing good paragraphs. A paragraph is a group of sentences uh, put together to convey one main idea. And the most important sentence in a whole paragraph is the very first one. That's commonly called the topic sentence. That topic sentence is to set forth the subject of the whole paragraph, giving an overview, if you will, of the, of the sentences to follow. And I bring all that up because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does in Galatians 5.1. He sets forth the ideas of the whole section that we read. In fact, he actually gives us the two points that we want to discuss. Jesus has set us free, so do not let yourself be enslaved again. There's our two points. That's the theme of this whole section. 
Let's examine those two things. First of all, Jesus has set us free. There's something glorious about people being set free. We've all seen it here or there in one situation or another. I remember very pointedly in 1973, sitting in a motel room in Colorado Springs, Colorado, glued to the television as prisoners of war, some held for six or eight years in Vietnam, uh, walked off of an airplane free at last. I have seldom been so deeply moved, so impressed with the sweetness of freedom. And folks, Jesus came to set us free. We're going to discuss that in some detail. But first, we ought to say what we're not saying. For there are many things which Jesus did not, from which Jesus did not set us free. He has not set us free from having authority over us. As Israel was set free from slavery in Egypt in order to belong to the Lord, so we are set free, not just to be alone and, 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 and on our own in the world doing whatever we want, but to belong to Christ as his chosen people, his treasured possession. He has not set us free from the distinction between right and wrong. He did not set us adrift on a sea of relativism where I decide what's true for me and you decide what's true for you, and they may be completely contradictory. No. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, whether in the Old Testament or the New, God has established some absolute moral truths. There's no way we can escape those. He did not set us free from our struggle against sin. We cannot just do what we please. As we will see later, we still have a sinful flesh to battle with, and to just cave into our evil desires gets us sucked into bondage again. He did not set us free from the hard work of obedience. Jesus repeatedly calls his disciples to obey. Indeed, verse 6 sums up the whole Christian life as faith working through love. Jesus certainly set us free, but he did not make everything easy. The Christian life is still a lot of hard work of obedience. He did not set us free from being accountable for our actions. We tend to think that freedom means I can do whatever I want and it's nobody's business. But God says that both now and on Judgment Day, we are accountable for what we do. We will reap what we sow. God sets us free and makes us his children, but he chastens those he loves. And finally, we're not set free from the not yet part of our salvation. We Christians often talk as if we already have all of the blessings that God has promised. That's not true. We do not yet have it all. We wait in hope. We do not yet see everything clearly. We walk by faith. We keep on believing God's word, even when his promises seem impossible. God has not set us free in such a manner that we already see everything as it will be in glory. You see, we misunderstand our freedom in Christ. If we imagine that we now are to live without any restraint, with no authority, with no moral absolutes, with no accountability to anyone but ourselves, with no direction in life and nothing to look forward to, 
That's not freedom. Nevertheless, our text does say, for freedom, Christ has set us free, and that means something. So let's consider the profound ways in which Jesus did set us free. I want to suggest four things. The first one is this. Jesus set us free from the requirements of the law. He set us free from the requirements of the law. Christians argue about the proper use of the law. They have for centuries. They still do today. But none can escape the fact that our relationship to the law of Moses has changed. The law was a schoolmaster designed to point us to Christ. But now that Christ has come, we follow him. We're his disciples, not the disciples of Moses. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find the apostles training Gentile converts in the traditions of the Torah. Instead, their commission was, was to be teaching them to observe everything that Christ has commanded. Keeping the old covenant law is no longer the controlling agenda of our lives. As we read back in chapter 3, verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Jesus set us free from the requirements of the law. Second thing, Jesus set us free from the idea that we must earn God's favor by keeping his law. Now, God's salvation has actually never been earned by law-keeping. It has always been all about grace, all about trusting in the mercy of God. But the culture surrounding Jewish life under the law became obsessed with earning God's favor by meticulous obedience to smaller and smaller items uh, 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 somehow sorted out or figured out uh, based on the law. Remember how stringent the Pharisees were, tithing your spice, not picking a handful of grain on the Sabbath day, indeed not even doing works of mercy on the Sabbath day. But Jesus set us free from all that by coming into the world like he came in humiliation and suffering by his death and resurrection. Jesus made it clear that everything necessary for our salvation has been done by him, not us. So we who believe in Jesus enjoy God's favor because of Jesus' work. We love him not to get him to love us, but because he already loved us first. What a contrast to the burden of the law. It demands of us, but it has no power to change us. And we are not able to keep its commands because we're sinful inside. Thus, we're continually beaten down with our hopeless situation. We will never be good enough to earn God's favor. But here's the wonder of the gospel. God loved us when we were unlovely. On our behalf, Jesus kept the law that we could never keep. And now in his grace, God imputes Jesus' right standing to us and treats us like his son. Third thing, Jesus also set us free from the guilt of sin. Because Jesus took the guilt of our sin upon himself, suffered in our place. Now, though we struggle against sin, there's no condemnation. Our conscience is free, cleansed, no longer haunting and accusing and destroying us. 
Oh, we humans devise endless ways to try to cover up our failures. But we have no way to clear our conscience. But because Jesus paid all we owe, God washes our conscience clean. Folks, this is an unfathomable miracle of grace. In every church, probably including this one, there are people with terrible pasts that I don't know, that probably nobody else knows. There are people who have been thieves and liars and adulterers who've aborted their unborn children, who perhaps have murdered. And yet here we sit, smiling and happy as if it never happened. Are we crazy? You cannot do those things. No, you can't. But God wipes the slate clean. He remembers no more. We are totally (coughs) forgiven for Jesus paid the debt. So much so that it's no longer even proper to call us those things that we have been. As Paul says in another place, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be, be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or male prostitutes or homosexual offenders or thieves or the greedy nor drunkards or slanders nor swinders will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were, were. But you're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here we sit. And worship, really, with a clear conscience. For God in his grace set us free from the guilt of our sin. And finally, Jesus sets us free to live in fellowship with our maker. Did you ever notice all the similarities between the first couple of chapters of the Bible and the last couple of chapters of the Bible? The story begins in a garden with rivers flowing and trees bearing fruit. And the story ends in a restored, perfect garden, heaven on earth. But the most wonderful thing about that garden in Genesis was the fellowship between Adam and Eve and their creator. It says that God walked in the garden and talked with them in the cool of the day. Of course, you know what happened. Sin entered the picture picture and brought alienation between them and God. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. Eventually they died. But over the centuries, God never gave up his original plan. And now Christ Jesus has come to bring restoration. By his death and resurrection, the curse of sin has been broken. And that he is coming will he will remove it entirely and restore the whole creation. Though we don't see that all yet. But what we do see is reconciliation with God taking place. God came in the person of Jesus, not counting our sins against us, but taking them upon himself. And now by the work of the Holy Spirit, God joins us to Jesus. And every person joined to Jesus is a new creation, part of the new creation which we do not yet see completed. And because of this creative new work, the alienation is removed and we are reconciled 
to our Creator. Jesus has set us free, not just to do our own thing apart from Him, but to know Him and to walk with Him, to enjoy Him, to have fellowship with the One who made us and knows us better than we know ourselves. That is already true right now and will be for all eternity. What a powerful and profound statement we have in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. But then there's a second truth in that first verse. Don't let yourself be enslaved again. Don't let yourself be enslaved again. Officially, we don't have slavery in this country anymore, but in reality, there are many people who still get enslaved to drugs and crime and hurtful relationships and self-destructive lifestyles. And our hearts go out to people who are victimized and, and find themselves in that kind of slavery. But we also know that the victims share some of the responsibility. So in this section, the apostle speaks of those false teachers who are pressing the, the Galatian believers back into religious slavery. And he has harsh words for them down in verse 12. But mostly in these verses, the apostle explains how believers can and must avoid being enslaved again now that Christ has set us free. I see three things, three little principles that we can derive from this. The first is this, don't just blindly follow. Don't just blindly follow. The apostle Paul often uses a race, an athletic event, a an Olympic race or whatever kind of race as a picture of the Christian life. So in his writings, he has a lot of points of analogy between the Christian life and, and running a race. One has to train to run. There's a prize to be won at the end. You have to complete, compete according to the rules. And, and, it's not, and it's all for naught if you don't finish the race. And now here, we learn from the race, don't just blindly follow someone and get off I was looking on the internet for a specific thing this week, but I never, which I never found, but I came across an interesting story about the Canadian Army run up in Ottawa. It's a popular five-kilometer race uh, for the Canadian Armed Forces, plus any members of the public that want to run. So last year they had like 22,000 runners. Well, the race was going quite well and let off. There was a cyclist in front, a uh, uh, leading them around the course, and the race went quite well until the cyclist took a wrong turn. And all the leaders of the race, who were way up there with him, went the wrong way. Interestingly, there was a police officer standing in the intersection, waving his arms, and telling the, the runners, don't, no, 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 don't go there, go straight. And the runners just yelled, get out of the way, and they followed the cyclist off course. The leaders of the race. That's a lot like what's happened in Galatia. These people had come to believe in Jesus. And they were doing well in the race that is the Christian life. And suddenly some teachers uh, had come in, presumably to help them, but turned out leading them off course, threatening their disqualification. And the police officer well, that's kind of like the Apostle Paul standing in the middle of the course saying, don't do it. You're about to disqualify yourself. If you go down that road of circumcision, Christ will be of no value to you. 
but they weren't listening. And may I suggest that we Christians today are terrible about this. We have our Christian celebrities, our celebrity preachers. We see them on television. They write books. They flood the market with books. And because they're popular, we just say, oh, yeah, we buy it. We follow them. We listen to whatever they say. Though sometimes they are suggesting deadly turns away from the truth. Don't let anyone dissuade you from obeying the gospel. Don't let someone take you off course. Don't just follow blindly whoever claims to, uh, to, 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 to be speaking for the Lord. Second thing he says here, pay attention to the details. Pay attention to the details. Paul uses a familiar little saying, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Jesus used that saying too, you recall. Apparently what's going on here, as we try to think, why does he throw this in? What's going on in, in Galatia? Apparently Paul's detractors thought, eh, Paul, he's making a mountain out of a molehill here. Uh, hey, being circumcised is no big deal. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't hurt people to get circumcised. I mean, the Bible talks about just do it, right? But the apostle knew that getting circumcised was only the beginning. It's not an evil thing in itself. People still circumcise their babies today for hygienic reasons. But circumcision was the entry ritual into a life to be lived as a Jew according to the law. So to be circumcised, in effect, said, I will be a faithful disciple of Moses. But folks, Jesus tolerates no competitors, not even from the old covenant religion. He alone is our hope. Jesus, not not Jesus plus living as a Jew, being circumcised, whatever. For them to undergo this Jewish rite was tantamount to abandoning Jesus. To submit to, to circumcision was to submit yourself to the whole system of the law that he came to fulfill. So Paul reminds them about yeast. It only takes a tiny bit of yeast to affect the whole batch of dough. That's why it was such a popular metaphor for sin. A little sin taints and corrupts everything. You see, there are no little things. When we're talking about setting aside or adding to the gospel, the gospel is all we have, folks. To set it aside, even partially, even for just a moment, is to set aside our only hope and to fall away from grace. Finally, a third thing. Don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everything you hear. These verses speak of leaders uh, throwing the church into confusion. And we have to kind of uh, 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 build this backwards to see what's going on. But specifically, we learned in verse 11 that they seem to have been saying, well, the Apostle Paul himself taught people to be circumcised. So Paul answers this and shows that they are spinning the truth. 
Everyone knew that Paul was often persecuted, not primarily by Roman officials, by the way, mostly by the Jewish leaders or by Roman officials uh, 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 to whom the Jewish leaders complained. Were those religious men really against Paul being religious? Of course not. They wanted everybody to be religious. What they hated was the message of Jesus dying on the cross. That was offensive to them in so many ways. It was offensive to think that one who claimed to be the Messiah of Israel couldn't keep himself from being executed like a common criminal on a Roman cross. The idea that Jesus died as a sin substitute was offensive. It seemed to suggest that people were more wicked than we would want to admit. The idea that Jesus' death was the only way to be right with God was offensive, was insulting, because their devout, that was saying their devout observance of the law was not enough. In short, the devout Jews were scandalized by the message of the cross. The Romans just thought it was stupid. The Jews were scandalized by it. So Paul argues, if I were preaching that you had to be circumcised according to the law and therefore keep the law, I would not be being persecuted. But you know I am being persecuted. And that proves that I have not removed the offense of the cross from my presentation of the gospel. Obviously, these false teachers had spun something that Paul preached and used it to argue against the gospel he really preached. And people do the same thing today. If you're not going to be led astray, you're going to have to pay attention and not just believe everything you hear. You're going to have to fact-check things being said to see if that's really what the Bible says. You cannot just accept every enticing, clever teaching, or you will be enslaved to views which rob you of your freedom in Christ. Or dear people, our situation is much different than the people in Galatia. But in other ways, it's pretty similar. There are lots There's lots of religion around. And generally, people accept that as a good thing. It's all right. Everybody's religious. But the gospel of the crucified and risen Jesus seems to be offensive to almost everybody. So much so that not only atheists and secularists, but other religious groups And even some so-called Christians would destroy that kind of gospel about Jesus on a cross. And therefore destroy the hope that we have in him. Be vigilant. Don't let yourself be enslaved again. Two truths here. Jesus set us free. So don't let yourself be enslaved anew. anew. The message of this entire passage is summarized in the very first verse. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the gospel that's so simple and yet so profound, and it's been distorted in so many ways and been spun in so many different directions, has been openly maligned and has been quietly uh, manipulated until, Father, we often would be at a loss to, to, to even sort out what the truth is in all of that. So, Lord, give us a, a, a heart of uh, diligence to uh, not just blindly follow others, but to pay attention and to, to, to not just hear, believe everything we hear, but to see what's true and to hold fast to the gospel, which is our hope, our only hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this book of Galatians, which even though it's hard for us to work through, is a profitable for us. And we pray that we benefit from it. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll find your bulletin there.